You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rathke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. On this episode of The Zeitgeist, uh, I'm here with uh, General Ben Hodges. Um, uh, General Hodges uh, was the commander of U.S. Army uh, Europe from 2014 to 2017 at an extremely crucial period in uh, in recent European history uh, uh, after the Russian annexation of Crimea and really the start of of NATO's uh, you know reinforced uh, focus on um, creating new capabilities and responding to the changed international security environment and there are a few people who know European security better uh, than Ben Hodges. So thank you for being with us today. And Jeff, thanks very much for the privilege. Well, uh, it, you, you spent 37 years, if, I, if my math is right, in the, in the U.S. Army, uh, a lot of that in Europe. And, uh, and right now, these days, as we're talking, uh, there is a major um, operation um, exercise defender uh, happening. Um, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about that and why it's important? So Defender 20, uh, a uh, exercise that will bring about 20,000 U.S. Army troops and uh, thousands of uh, vehicles from the states, from their bases in the states, over to uh, Europe, uh, where they will join a, a approximately another 18,000 uh, soldiers from the United States and allied countries. Uh, they'll also draw equipment out of prepositioned storage sites. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they're going to move across Europe and conduct various exercises between Lithuania, Poland, Germany, even in Georgia. Um, and, and of course, the purpose is to practice the deployment. Yeah, that's that's the part, and uh, and to work with our allies in a variety of scenarios. the The strategic objective, though, and the real value of this exercise is this is a part of deterrence. You know, deterrence is about having uh, capability and demonstrating capability and demonstrating the will to use capability. So the fact that the United States is going to spend the money in the effort to move all this stuff to Europe is a demonstration not only to our allies but also to a potential adversary in the Kremlin that we're, we're serious, we're committed, and right. uh, we're willing to do what it takes to, uh, um, to show that we are prepared and this is how you prevent a crisis from ever happening. And this is the biggest reinforcement exercise in a quarter century. Um, uh, how how big when when you were commander of U.S. Army Europe? How big did uh, did these kind of uh, exercises? Well, certainly, uh, um, uh, Defender Twenty is larger than uh, any exercise in which I participated in uh, during my last three years there. Um, we had started thanks to decision by the uh, Obama administration. Um, after Russia's invasion of Crimea, annexation, illegal annexation of Crimea, to we had to undo decisions that had been made. You know, the last American tank went home about seven years ago. The yep. last American tank was gone, and uh, so the uh, the administration made the decision to bring armor back to Europe in the form of a rotational armor brigade combat team. So, you know, about four thousand troops, eighty something tanks, and all the other associated capabilities. And they would come over and, and uh, spend nine months and train from Estonia down to Bulgaria. Poland was kind of the center of gravity for this, yeah. but also in Germany. Um, 
and we had to do the same thing with the aviation because the army again this was, we all thought Russia was going to be our partner right you know so everybody was disarming uh, the Brits were pulling all of their stuff off the continent bringing it home um, so the Russia's aggressive behavior caused us all to have to you know go back to uh, more traditional deterrence yeah. so we had to uh, do the same thing with aviation to bring helicopters back over to Europe this is very expensive but it, it demonstrates commitment of the United States to Europe that it, and everything that President Obama promised at the NATO summit in Warsaw which included all the equipment for an armored division to be put in storage in Europe. The current administration has fulfilled that mm-hmm. promise. So, so there's, there's real continuity uh, there in yeah. U.S. policy, despite all the rhetoric about NATO. Yeah, in, um, in fact, if you, um, you have to kind of block out the, some of the uh, disruptive language about you know, Germany or allies and NATO and then look at what's actually happening on the ground, what the, what the administration has delivered, we actually have increased the number of U.S. troops that are stationed in Germany. We've added a fires brigade um, in addition to the rotational uh, troops. So it's, it's significant, and uh, the, you know, none of this would happen without congressional support also, yeah. obviously, the, the bipartisan support, the uh, continued uh, funding of European Defense Initiative, helps improve infrastructure, it pays for National Guard and Reserve units, to go, which are critical for everything that we do. Yes. Most of this is paid for by that. So actually, U.S. policy effect, the physical is, uh, is continued in a, in a great direction. Yeah. Um, one last thought on, on this before we move on to an, another topic, and that is, you know, Germany plays, of course, a key role, uh, not only in Defender uh, 2020, but in the ability to move uh, forces uh, across uh, across Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, can, you, can you say a word about how that's changing um, in recent years? Well, you know, just yesterday, uh, Lieutenant General Martin Schelleis, who commands Germany's uh, Joint Support Command, was standing next to Lieutenant General Chris Cavoli, who commands U.S. Army Europe, at the port of Bremerhaven as first vehicles were beginning to arrive for Defender 20. Yeah. Uh, they were there, of course, uh, to help talk about why Defender 20 is important, uh, but just the visual of a German officer and an American officer standing there together at Bremerhaven as American equipment begins to roll off of ships uh, was powerful. Uh, and it highlights Germany's strategic importance for the United States and for the Alliance as a logistical hub that the port of Bremerhaven is essential for us. I mean, it, it yeah. is a very important port. There are other ports we could use, but Bremerhaven is the, is the preferred port because of its quality and capability and its location. Um, and, and Germany has... And Germany's rail network um, yeah, well, and other logistical The, 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 rail, uh, the rail network is essential. Everybody in Europe depends on, on German rail. Now, um, it's not up to the capacity that we need, though, to really be an effective deterrent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's time that uh, the Alliance and that the United States thinks about Germany's role and what burden sharing really means, what 2% means in a, in a different way. We, mm-hmm. we, need, uh, we don't need more German tanks, we need more German trains yeah. to be able to move quickly. And, 
you know, during the Cold War, Germany was a frontline state. The inner German border which separated East Germany and West Germany. We had a Bundeswehr, a German military of 12 divisions. It's huge. They're excellent. We don't need that anymore. The, the front line is 600 miles away uh, on the other side of Poland. Uh, what, so I think it's time to have a more nuanced, sophisticated view of what burden sharing really is. What do we need Germany? What does NATO need Germany to do? What, what does Europe need Germany to do? We'll come back to the numbers on burden sharing in a minute, but I want to talk about the physical manifestation of burden sharing. You mentioned the decision at the Warsaw Summit back in 2016, which was about the rotational presence of battalion-sized battle groups across the eastern flank, and then the so-called tailored forward presence in the southeast. Germany's playing a pretty big role as the leader of the battle group in Lithuania. What kind of stresses has that put on the German Bundeswehr, and how has Germany been responding, in your view? So we're talking, of course, about the enhanced forward presence battle groups. Um, each battle group is about a thousand troops, uh, multinational by design, so that the alliance has almost every country in NATO represented in one of these four battle groups. One in Estonia that's led by the UK, one in Latvia that's led by Canada, one in uh, Lithuania that's led by Germany, and of course the American-led battle group that's in uh, northeast Poland. Um, the one that the Germans lead in Lithuania uh, has German, Norwegian, Belgian, Dutch, uh, occasionally French troops in it. So, and of course the strategic purpose is to deter Russian aggression. And so that Russia, when they look across, they see a united NATO, not just two or three countries, but instead all of these nations are uh, represented there. So literally skin in the game. Yeah. Uh, and it was so important that Germany uh, did this. Uh, first of all, they're the only uh, EU nation that's leading. Uh, so that that helps demonstrate some leadership inside the European Union. But more importantly, Germany was the first one to raise their hand and said, we'll, we'll lead a battle group. And we'll right. do it in Lithuania. That put a lot of pressure on everybody else. All the other European countries like, dang it, you know, the Germans are doing it. We have to do it. And uh, they have been very good from the start. They, they're at the right level of readiness. Um, now, to be able to generate that, you know, of course, just like when the U.S. Army was sending uh, brigades to uh, or battalions to Afghanistan, yeah. the whole Army system was set up to generate a unit that was at the right level of manning, equipping, and readiness so it could go to Afghanistan. So the whole model changed. And, you know, the Bundeswehr is doing the same thing. So that they, every six months, you've got a brand new battle group that's been through all its training and uh, run-up. It's fully manned, fully equipped, and then it goes to Lithuania for six months, and it's yeah. ready to fight that night for six months. Um, that takes some institutional... Uh, plus, they have... We have German troops that are, uh, last year they were the VJTF, the Very High Readiness Joint Task Force. So they had 8,000 German troops in Norway for an exercise. It, That's the NATO Rapid Reaction Force, for those not familiar out correct. there. Correct. Thank you. Um, but it took the whole Bundeswehr to generate that. I mean, they had to take from other units. Yeah. So it also um, exposes that they have uh, a lot of work to do to improve the readiness. I think that's a good pivot to the way forward. Um, you know, what's you know, uh, there's been a lot of focus on numbers. German defense spending has has increased since 2014. That's when it reached the kind of the bottom of the of the curve, 
And since then, it's increased by about 38%. Um, uh, Germany actually is uh, within the European Union, uh, judging by NATO's 2019 figures, the largest defense spender. Germany spends more money than France um, mm-hmm. on, uh, on the military. Nu- and France has nuclear weapons. Yeah, so that's uh, there's <laughs> there's another there's another aspect to this, but but um, so Germany has has stepped up its uh, its spending uh, in significant ways, and I, I guess Ben, I'd like to hear your what's your assessment of how much further Germany has to go? Um, is are the is this increased investment starting to have the desired impact? Uh, on Germany's capabilities and readiness, and how much further is there to go? So, uh, first of all, I think that uh, Germany needs to figure out what, how does it see itself? Uh, I don't think many Germans trust themselves to, to lead. I mean, I hear it all the time, uh, uh, you know, our history, we're a middle power, we've, we're worried about this. And, and I think, you know, no nation has done more to atone for its past than Germany. Yeah. And um, I think it would be useful if they would get on with it. You know, they're, Germany, uh, by its leadership in the European Union, as well as within the alliance, can probably do more to change or influence Russian behavior and Chinese behavior than anybody else because it can bring along the whole European Union. So lead, be a leader. Don't uh, have the confidence to lead, and I think the United States, we could we could do better at encouraging German leadership versus constantly criticizing Germany. That that would be one thing. Um, I do get a little weary. I hear uh, this strategic uh, inertia, yeah, in in Germany, in Berlin, frankly, uh, uh, unwillingness to they don't know what they want to do. Um, Germany has correctly anchored their security in NATO because they're not a nuclear power like France. I mean, France can talk about strategic autonomy because they have nuclear weapons and because they have a permanent seat in the UN Security Council. Germany has neither. So they correctly have anchored their security to NATO as well as to the European Union. Uh, But I think that a nation that has basically guaranteed security from outside threats... Surrounded by friends, as they say. Surrounded by friends... Um, and uh, they've got such economic uh, power. There's responsibility that comes with that, and and so they need to they need to lead. And of course, the, their uh, investment uh, as a part of NATO, the most successful alliance in the history of the world, um, requires investment in their military capabilities as well as all the other things. Uh, they actually have. They are spending a lot of money. Uh, I think, though, that they are uh, burdened with a bureaucratic system, a procurement system, and ours is not perfect for sure, but um, the decisions that were made 10 or 12 years ago, they are still laboring Mm -hmm. under that, which they're not getting the best benefit for their uh, investment yet. So uh, the officers I know in the Bundeswehr and people in the ministry that are there now, they get this. I mean, they, they are working hard. Uh, but you've got a very, uh, in my view, a uh, weak coalition. Yeah. And uh, uh, so not everybody is on board yet in, in this coalition government. And, and so it, just like in the United States, you have to have legislative support as well as executive support. Um, the men and women of the Bundeswehr, though, they know, how to, they know how to fix weapons or vehicles. They know how to do these things. They need, they need some political help to do that as well. Now... 
um, the size of the Bundeswehr is probably about right. I mean, they're working mm-hmm. to have three hundred eighty thousand. Correct, and that's of land, sea, air, special forces. Um, the the size is probably about right, but it's not fully manned and it's not fully equipped. So continue to invest there, and to make sure that what you have works. I mean, the the one nation on the planet that is synonymous with engineering, it's, <laughs> it's impossible to understand why equipment readiness would be so low. Right. So that readiness, readiness, readiness. Those are the top three priorities. Um, but then there's things that um, I would like to see them do. Uh, the infrastructure we talked about Bremerhaven earlier. Yeah. It's essential for NATO. It's essential for the United States that we can flow into and through Germany. So. Uh, investment in rail capacity, for example, uh, or improving infrastructure, uh, the cyber defense of all of this, that, that's just as important as being able to knock down incoming missiles. Uh, it's important for us. I, I think we ought to look at incentivizing Germany to invest there, uh, and also, frankly, uh, air and missile defense. Uh, the Russians have some terrible hypersonic missiles that are capable of causing a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Germany should take the lead in protecting European citizens. And I think you have to, when you talk to Germany, you have to think in terms of Europe. Right. Not protecting German citizens, but protecting European citizens. And th- they seem to be more willing to do that. Yeah. Well, um, I always learn something when I talk to Ben Hodges. Uh, and, uh, and I think uh, all of our listeners out there will be happy to, uh, to, uh, to learn from you today as well. I want to thank you for joining us here at AICGS headquarters here in Washington, and uh, we look forward to the next time we get to talk. Thanks so much, Ben. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org, or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.